Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hong Kong's next leader, John Lee, is visiting Beijing, where he is expected to get the central government's official nod before he officially takes office in a month. Uh, Mr. Lee, who is 64, is a former police officer and security chief who oversaw the crackdown on Hong Kong's democracy movement, was chosen as the next chief executive by a select group of Beijing loyalists earlier this month. Now, he was the sole candidate in the race and got 99% of the vote after China changed Hong Kong's electoral system to exclude anyone deemed unpatriotic. Now, as part of a four-day trip, which began on Saturday, Mr. Li is expected to receive his official letter of appointment from the Chinese Premier and meet top Chinese leaders. Now, Mr. Li will assume office on July 1st, which coincides with the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's transfer from the from British to Chinese rule and the halfway point of the so-called one-country, two-party system, which was supposed to safeguard Hong Kong's freedoms and a way of life for at least 50 years. Canada, of course, has a historic connection to Hong Kong. 300,000 Canadians call Hong Kong home. Hong Kong has one of the largest Canadian diaspora communities in the world, second only to the United States, where about a million Canadians live. Uh, Hong Kong is number two. Third, by the way, is the United Kingdom, which uh, has about 73,000 Canucks. Joining us now to talk about Hong Kong in the context of China is Michael Curtis Davis, Senior Research Scholar at the Weatherhead East Asia Institute at Columbia University and a Professor of Law and International Affairs at Jindal Global University. Welcome, uh, Mr. Uh, Davis. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Uh, So my first question uh, to you, sir, is how would you describe uh, the mood, the conversation in Hong Kong today? It's become very, pretty much frozen, on, and uh, the only voices that are allowed to speak are those who support Beijing. I mean, I lived in, I taught as a professor at the University of Hong Kong for 30 years, and it was mm-hmm. one of the most vibrant places in the world, where you'd get debate on all sorts of issues, very high levels of public engagement, a very admirable a kind of international city. Uh, that's all gone now. Uh, people are living in fear that if they speak up in any significant way against the government, that they'll be arrested, and many have been arrested. Uh, in regards to um, its new leader, Mr. Li, who I was uh, saying is in, in uh, mainland China uh, this weekend, uh, how are people in Hong Kong seeing the selection of Mr. Li? Well, they, you know, they basically know that he's Beijing's chosen person Uh, under this new process that they essentially eliminated all the opposition from what's called an election committee Uh, and the chief executive under the basic law even since the handover was chosen by this election committee it used to be there were some opposition voices in the committee but still only about 20 percent so part of the promise in, in basic law was that this would be reformed 
and universal suffrage would be instituted. But when that was tried in 2014 and 15, uh, Beijing essentially imposed a rule on, on the universal suffrage that it would have control over the candidates. Uh, it was going to do this by imposing a high threshold to be nominated under what is mostly a pro-Beijing election committee. Now, since then, in 2021, they've changed it even further to eliminate any opposition. There is no opposition in this election committee. A legislative council was elected. There's no opposition there. Uh, And when Mr. Lee wanted to run, in the old days, they would at least allow one or two candidates to contest uh, the election for chief executive before the election committee. Beijing would always signal its preferred one, and most of the pro-Beijing members of the committee would get in line and and give Beijing what it wanted. So, But there was a kind of pretense. This time around, they didn't even bother to have an opposition candidate. Uh, They have such a strict vetting process for the election committee and for uh, any candidates that no one essentially ran. uh, The the candidate would have to go to election committee members and get people to sign on to nominate him. And and Mr. Lee had more than half the members already nominating him (laughs) because Beijing uh, had said and indicated very clearly uh, that he was their man. Uh, what happens to civil society uh, in that city now? Its activists, uh, its news organizations, um, its artists, its writers. What happens to civil society now? There's been a very severe crackdown. Uh, a lot of people that dared to speak up have been arrested if they said anything the government didn't like. And, you know, this under this new national security law, uh, the definition of, of what's a, what's pro- prohibited in terms of subversion or, 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 or secession or advocating a kind of independence or, or collusion with foreign forces. Uh, this is all very vague. And so about 170, I, I, I think that's about the count, have, people have been uh, arrested under the national security law already. Uh, and the law, in effect, creates a presumption against bail. So uh, most of those arrested are ling- languishing in jail. Uh, and one of the things they did is when uh, the opposition, before they changed the electoral system, the opposition uh, tried to have a primary election to get the best candidates to run what, in what was then expected to be a legislative council election. In the old legislative council, half the seats were directly elected. Uh, and uh, that, they were accused, this was right after the national security law was passed, they were accused of subversion, and all 42 of them uh, were arrested. Uh, and most of them, uh, 34 of them, remain in jail with denied bail over a year now. Uh, and so a very clear signal, they, they, the publisher of the, most, the leading opposition newspaper, the Apple Daily, was arrested He's languished in jail for over a year again, denied bail, accused of, of colluding with foreign forces and subversion. Some people who did things before the national security law that the government didn't like are arre- arrested under a sedition law that already existed under the old colonial era. Uh, that sedition law had not been used since the 60s because after the handover, people thought it would violate the human rights guarantees in the basic law. But that no longer matters. Uh, People are arrested even for creating children's books that may have suggestive stories in them, uh, Mm. accused of of subversion and so on, or incitement to subversion. 
uh, media people are arrested. Almost all civil society organizations that would express opposition have been disbanded now. Uh, they've been forced and put under pressure to disband. Even the alliance that supported the, the uh, you know, to commemorate the June 4th crackdown in Beijing, the leaders of it are all arrested. That's been disbanded. Even things like the Hong Kong Journalist Association is under threat. The Foreign Correspondence Club recently canceled its annual awards for Human Rights Press Award. I won one of them myself a few years ago. Uh, and they, they, they selected all the people and then canceled uh, awarding it at the last minute, fearful that they would be attacked and put under pressure. Uh, unions have disbanded, uh, teachers' unions. The uh, uh, universities are under stress because uh, they all have to teach national security. Used to be professors had a leading role in Hong Kong in expressing uh, views about public policy and so on. Now it's almost all gone silent. I'm interviewed almost every day on this because I'm not in Hong Kong and can say freely what I think about things. So it's been a very severe crackdown. As I was saying in the introduction, we have 300,000 Canadians who live um, in Hong Kong, a significant uh, uh, population of Canadians. And so, you know, when we look at uh, Hong Kong in the context of Canada, a lot of our citizens are, are, are there. Uh, when I made this introduction uh, for this segment, we talked about the one country, two party system and the fact that it was supposed to be there for 50 years. Uh, July 1st will mark the 25th anniversary. Listening to your comments prior to the break in regards to the significant changes in regards to the stifling of, of uh, the ability to have an opinion, expressing your opinion, and just the, 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 the crackdown from the, the, the Communist Party. And I don't want to sound fatalistic here, but is this was this not going to happen? Was it not inevitable, even with a 50-year framework, that eventually the mainland would want to come in and they would not allow this one-country, two-system framework to last? You know, this is, is, a, is a difficult question to answer because if you looked at the Senate-British Joint Declaration that provided for this and the basic law, it had an extraordinary guarantees. It, it, it maintained the common law system and so on. So there was a kind of vision that Hong Kong, maybe like other, uh, you know, free market economies in the region, would just exist sort of in the way it traditionally existed. Uh, and because the British rule was to be eliminated, that there would be local self-rule and that these things would protect Hong Kong from uh, these guarantees would protect Hong Kong from mainland influence in certain ways, even provided in there that mainland departments were not to interfere in Hong Kong and mainland laws were not to apply. So, so there was a very clear vision uh, under Deng Xiaoping's leadership on this. Uh, and yet uh, it seems, as you suggest, there's a kind of DNA of control in the Communist Party that they simply couldn't carry it out, that they, they were always out to, uh, you know, control things and would not be able to relax. Um, in regards to the 300,000 Canadians that I had mentioned, how significant, uh, from what you're hearing from fam family, friends, colleagues, um, in your own research, how significant is the brain drain? Uh, from Hong Kong, because everything that you've talked about speaks to a quality of life. 
speaks to an openness. Seeb speaks to the ability for a city to sell itself to expats and other people uh, wanting to work in this vibrant city. Uh, how real is the brain drain now because of what's happened? It is real. I don't have this, the numbers here right now in my head, but but what what's happening is uh, there's two levels of this. One is the COVID uh, that the Hong Kong government now so directly under the control of Beijing uh, carried out this so-called zero COVID policy uh, for a long time, and and that made things very difficult. So you can't really go come and go from Hong Kong. So that that thing that's separate but in some ways related because it, it represents a kind of Beijing model, which we're now seeing still in Shanghai and other cities on the mainland, which is having a huge economic impact. And so people, uh, foreigners that are there, really want to leave for that alone. But on top of all of that, with these controls on education and so on and the silencing of opposition voices, a lot of people just don't want their children to be raised in this environment where they where they don't have access to a good liberal education or where the liberal education has been degraded. So there's a lot of impact there. There's also a kind of corruption that's creeped across the border because supporting the mainland policies becomes imperative if you want to do business with mainland companies and so on. So there's a kind of leverage if you stay in Hong Kong that you have to go along to get along. Uh, and then a lot of countries such as Canada, the United States, and so on, are, are, have laws that seek to uh, restrain companies from engaging in certain kinds of behavior abroad. Uh, and there's a lot of promotion of these kinds of policies, sometimes in the form of sanctions and other times just laws themselves on, on uh, human rights violations abroad. So I think com- companies there are put in a bit of a bind and it would be a rational judgment for many of them to get, go offshore. Even the New York Times moved most of its operation to Korea. So this is, is kind of what uh, expats are facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we've talked quite a bit about the crackdown uh, that we've been seeing the last few years. Um, where do we go now? Where does Chinese, the Chinese government, the mainland Chinese government go? And I was, I was reading recently that uh, you know, the, the hard border that you had between Hong Kong and, and, and coastal cities like Guangdong uh, may be gone. There's, a, there's a, an, certainly an encouragement uh, to integrate Hong Kong deeper into the sort of the greater Bay Area in and around um, where it is located, which would include Macau, many other cities, nine cities, I think, in the Guangdong province. Um, that integration, to my understanding, is is ongoing. Where does China go next in regards to integrating Hong Kong further into its sphere beyond the crackdowns that you've talked about? Well, I think it also reaches, you know, there was a term bandied about recently uh, called loyal rubbish, uh, to refer to Hong Kong tycoons, which Beijing always sort of cultivated a, a friendship with, and the tycoons were very pro-Beijing and pro-establishment, as we call it, in Hong Kong. Uh, there's a sense now that more and more mainlanders and mainland companies are going to be the tycoons, if you will, of Hong Kong. So this has an impact. Uh, some of the local businesses may find it a bit less, that they have less influence and are less comfortable. So along with this greater Bay Area agenda, there's. I think that this doesn't just reach out beyond Hong Kong, it reaches into Hong Kong as to who is powerful and influential in the city 
And in effect, if foreigners leave, Beijing will probably replace them with mainlanders. Uh, and so, so that has an impact. But I think there's also a kind of global impact to all of this in that this model is hollowing out of liberal institutions. Perhaps that is Beijing's model in countries where it has influence. So, so I, these are the questions I think uh, a lot of people, expats and investors, and Hong Kong people themselves, when they decide whether to stay, these are things that are on their minds. Mm-hmm. In regards to that, um, uh, in regards to liberal institutions, uh, that uh, liberal open life that you described when you lived there, uh, do you see that ever coming back now? And I mean, I, and I, like I said, once again, I don't want to sound fatalistic because I think that's the wrong way to go. Do you do you do you hold optimism for the city and its citizens? Well, I, Hong Kong people are so admirable. You know, I mean, I admire them so much because, you know, as an American and and, and people I know in, in North America, whether they vote or not and so on, is always questionable. Uh, whether they engage in public affairs, where the population of Hong Kong, has, as I lived there, was always very much engaged. So you like to think that if they're given a chance, that they could rebuild and, and restore these kinds of institutions. But then they're dealing with such a huge major power, uh, you know, sort of the elephant in the room, if you will, in Hong Kong is Beijing. Mm-hmm. And so it seems unlikely that things will improve unless Beijing itself improves its its policies. And that may have something to do with leadership in the country and, and the direction the country as a whole takes. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.